Hey, Katie. Hey, Ben. You're physically here. Yeah. Why? For the second time in six months. Uh, what so brings you to your Airbnb? I guess I'm here in your Airbnb, huh? Uh, yeah, so I'm in the Bay Area right now for a conference called Strata. By the time this gets released, that'll be a couple weeks in the past, but uh, I'll be giving a talk here in a couple of days, so it's nice to be back in the old neighborhood. Nice. Yeah. Maybe you can tell us what the talk is about after I say you are listening to Linear Digressions. I would be delighted to. Our talk, I'm giving it with one other uh, person, uh, a colleague of mine from work, and the talk that we wanted to give is about the way that we do project selection uh, in my department at Civis. So I run what's called our data science research and development department. And a little bit of background about what we do at Civis. So we're a startup. We've got about 150 folks based out of Chicago, and we do a lot of data science advisory work. So in other words, consulting with companies that are trying to start up analytics programs within their organizations, uh, companies, nonprofits, public sector work, this kind of thing. Yeah. And then there's also a technology component where we're building out software that does a lot of the cooler bits of the data science and this data science platform that has a lot of the, uh, the components put together for doing end to end data science work, this kind of thing. Neither of those feel like R&D, though. Right. So R&D has a pretty cool role, if I can say it myself. We sit, I would say, in between those two departments. So there's a big, what we call applied data science. That's the services work. Mm-hmm. There's an engineering department. That's the platform and software work. So what R&D does, we follow what's sometimes called in like management theory literature, a center of excellence model. Center of Excellence model? I'm laughing a little bit saying this right now. The general idea is that folks in the R&D department are functionally in the R&D department, but they go and work very closely with the applied data scientists sometimes on some of our interesting problems, stuff that we've never solved before or that is really hard for some reason or whatever. Uh, We go and help the engineers figure out what's the technology they need to be building to be ready for the next thing in data science. And then the stuff that we do that's more purely ours is keeping up with the data science literature and trying to figure out what the next thing in machine learning is, trying it out, seeing if it's useful for anything. That's cool. So research, development, and being a bridge between these two parts of the organization that might not talk as easily. Uh, yeah. And and that's been a little bit more true in the past than it is right now. I think the we aren't the only artery of communication between those two parts of the of the company anymore. But I guess the yeah. other thing that I'll I'll add parenthetically here is that we also do a lot of the external outreach that Civis does. So we go and do things like give talks or All right, post yeah. podcasts. And that's why you're here. Well I'm glad you're in that department and you occasionally make a trip to the Bay Area. I am me too, me too. Um, and so one of the things that we had to figure out as we were leading this department was what are we going to spend our time on? Because well, this is probably true of a lot of the data scientists who are out there. Like, There's a lot of interesting things that they could be doing. Yeah. And so how do you decide how to spend your time? And in particular, as one of the people who is in a management role in this department, I know that my team has uh, is a lot closer to the data science work than I am sometimes. And they have a lot of this bottom-up experience and enthusiasm that I would like to try to harness and get the, the best out of that. Uh, at the same time, sometimes... I or other people who are more in the management roles have more business context about what we like need to be working on. Mm, I see. Um, and so there's a little bit of uh, t- 
top down that one might want to do. And so when I'm trying to run the department, I want to be balancing these two against each other. And that's striking not a balance, a trivial thing to do. That's right. Right. How do you decide how I, I, how do you decide how to strike that balance? You know, because like you can, I, I assume it's just like a single dimension where you can kind of slide on that dimension, uh, towards bottom up or top down, or is it more complicated than that? Well, I think it's, yeah, it certainly is a little bit more complicated than that. So the first thing that we find to be really helpful for this is making sure that it sounds really trivial, but making sure that people are communicating with each other properly Uh and in our context, and this is, so I should parenthetically mention, like most of this talk is around the way that, uh, we run our team, but the reason that I'm here at Strata giving a talk about it is because we actually see it in a lot of the organizations that we are talking to for doing data science advisory work with them. I see. So it's like, it's a thing that you're trying to solve internally, but it's also, you're also finding the, uh, the, the solutions that you've uh, come up with or the lessons you've learned to be, um, applicable to a lot of organizations and probably something you should share. Totally. Yeah. And so if you're in one of those organizations, there's probably a few different types of, uh, problems that you might be having. So when we talk to a lot of people who are, we call them business stakeholders, but usually they're like executives in these companies, they're like, Oh, I've heard about data science. That sounds really cool, but I have no idea what that is. Can you help me figure Mm -hmm. it out? Mm -hmm. Or once they have a data science team up and running, sometimes they don't really know what the data scientists are doing. And that can be really frustrating as a C-suite who's spending a bunch of money on it. If Mm -hmm. you want to know what those folks are up to. Yeah. At the same time, if you're a data scientist, uh, you want to be, I mean, there's a lot of things you probably want to be doing as a data scientist, uh, doing excellent methodological work and playing around with cool new technology. Um, and in particular other things that might not be as obvious as you want to be getting the best out of your teammates and being a good colleague to the folks that you work with. So collaborating with them well on projects that are high impact and knowing which projects are high impact. So in in a lot of cases, that's about like what actually moves the needle at the company that you work at. And then for me, because I'm a manager, I kind of sit in between those two layers so that I do a lot of translating back and forth between this is what we need to do for hitting our metrics Mm. and this is what my data scientists are up to and this is why that matters for the business or whatever. Right. So just being able to translate between the different levels of the organization is actually a huge thing for getting an analytics program off the ground. If you can get the people at the different levels to talk to each other, that's actually a huge amount of the problem that you've addressed then. So that's an important prerequisite. And it's not trivial by any means. It sounds a little bit trivial when you first say it, uh, but that's kind of where it starts in terms of project prioritization and project selection is just having some agreement on what you're even talking about in the first place. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. I, I hadn't ever thought of it that way, but you have your C-level le- leadership, you've got your data scientists, and it's difficult if you're either one or the other to necessarily know how to how to have that communication, at least starting out. And so that's where a management role or some, some sort of a, someone who's a buffer who can act as that bridge, um, can really be beneficial. And then perhaps with the goal of abstracting that bridge away by helping each of the sides be able to communicate more directly with each other. Like that, that's a way that kind of everyone can grow. 
Right, right. And so the stuff that we ended up thinking about is what's a process that forces all these folks to speak to each other in one another's language so that there can yeah. be some shared understanding. <laughs> um, and that that process would be our decision-making process by which we would do project prioritization. And so when we were putting this together, uh, we were trying to think about, okay, we know that everyone needs to be talking to each other and what's a language that maybe everyone can speak. And so we split it into two pieces. There's a, a value to all of the different projects that we could do. And there's a there's risks and costs that are associated with all the projects that you want to do. And so in general, doing things that are high value or low risk or, or low cost are generally, you know, yeah. sure, uh, that's probably the place to start. Um, although you want to make sure that for us, we're a team of maybe 16 at this point. And so we have kind of a balance of more speculative and risky stuff and then some of the low hanging fruit and we have a chance to um, balance it out a little bit. So it starts with agreeing that there is such a thing as business value and trying to articulate a little bit what that means. So it's like, mm. oh, is this valuable to internal users? Like it's going to make a process that they use a lot smoother. Is this valuable to external users? Like there's actual clients or customers who would be using it. Is this valuable because uh, it's a cool idea and it's on brand for us and we could be out there talking about it or open sourcing a package if we did it. Uh, is this a good idea because it's something that people on our team are really excited about and they really want to work on and sometimes yeah. that's a good enough reason. Yeah, that, that last one is, is interesting to me. Sometimes, sometimes you want someone to work on a project just because, not just, but largely because they're really, really psyched about it. You know, and like in doing cost-benefit analyses, I think that that often one thing that's overlooked is the morale of the team members. Um, and it's a difficult thing to quantify and a difficult thing to measure, but a, a really, really important thing for um, retaining people and for ensuring that they're continuing to do the best work they can. Well, I appreciate that. And I think that it's really valuable to have those kinds of conversations uh, at the beginning of the entire process so that then when there are folks say, yeah. you know, business <laughs> stakeholders or whatever, that it's a lot easier to say that in general, like morale is really important. We want people to be happy with their work there um, before there's hard decisions that you have to make uh -huh. in a way. So you agree that that's something that in general you want to achieve. And then sometimes then when an opportunity presents itself to do that, but it's, it would mean leaving a little bit of business value on the table like you've already established yeah, that that's you front load that, that you, work yeah 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 you say hey this is important and then later when you need to do it you don't have to say okay well we could do this if i can convince them that this is important you've already done that yeah and the same way with uh the data scientists especially they um at least on my team they are super smart and they really love hard interesting problems at the same time they're also fairly reasonable people and they understand something like oh, hey, here's a language that only two people on our team know, or here's a library that we've never used before, or here's a something that we think we could build, but if we're really honest with ourselves, we don't know if anybody wants to buy it. Like Those are all risky things that you might do. And again, having a conversation up front around this is risky and we should be thoughtful about jumping overboard some of those ships. That's a terrible metaphor. I, yeah. <laughs> that that <laughs> um, metaphor... Uh, anyway, before you you know take those leaps into the unknown, let's say sure, yeah, that recognizing that you're actually 
you know, biting off some risk when you do that. And maybe, maybe a lot of the time things will be okay, but if you don't have to do that stuff, you probably want to minimize it. Yeah. It's look before you leap where look means, uh, figure out what the impact of that work would be. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Are we sure that we understand all of the technical risks, the market risks, the legal risks, all these kinds of things, like data privacy, for example, would be an important thing we would want to consider. Uh, And so enumerating, just like we enumerated all the ways that something to be valuable, enumerate all the ways that it could be risky or it could be particularly uh, expensive for us to fail on or, you know, sometimes it's even expensive to succeed. Yeah, right. So having that conversation up front about what are we even trying to do and how do we say, like, what's valuable and what's, like, where we want to be careful is an important sort of prerequisite. Uh, And then that is kind of the shared understanding with which we start our decision-making process, which we call the idea factory. This is a term that we stole from a book about Bell Labs. Uh, There's this really good book called The Idea Factory. Uh, and we liked that the sound of it is so uh, when you refer to the idea factory that is a phase in in a process or it's basically yeah it's basically a I would call it a process so mm-hmm. it's basically a one month from oh, beginning to end process right. okay it's got different phases and you kind of move through you have like a start date this is like a, yeah. a very specific thing yeah yeah and so we wanted to do this all at once because then when you're selecting the projects, the opportunity costs are a lot clearer. So in you, our... What, what does that mean to like to break that down a little bit? Oh, opportunity sure. costs. Yeah. So to give a concrete example, we've done, in my department, we've done the Idea Factory two times. Um, like I said, we have 15, 20 people in my department. The first time we did it, there were around 20 or 25 ideas of projects that we could work on. The second time, there were almost 50. Whoa. Uh, Yeah, and they were all really good. They were all really good. They were all really good. And we have bandwidth for maybe four or something. Oh, jeez. Five, you know? Jeez, wow. So that's what I mean by opportunity costs is that when you're choosing, let's say, five out of 50, there's 90% of them aren't going to happen. And those 90%, there's really good ideas in there. Wow. And so it really forces you to have honest conversations about where oh, you can have the biggest impact because you know about the stuff that you necessarily are saying. leaving on the table. I see what you're saying. You're not just saying, hey, I got this idea. I want to do this thing. You're saying, hey, I've got this idea. How does it stack up against the other 49? Mm-hmm. And then you have to, like, you, you're actually, you have to do a cost-benefit analysis against all of the others. Yeah, and that there's also a little bit of that portfolio-building aspect of it that we mentioned at the beginning, that when you're Mm. choosing four or five at a time, you can sometimes choose not just one, but it might be like, I'm going to do this one that's going to be an easy win, and at the same time, I'm going to do this other one that's more high-risk, high-reward, and you can balance Mm -hmm. out your portfolio a little arguably yeah. a little bit easier it, that way too. Yeah, I, I was going to say uh, earlier, it, it feels like, uh, in a way, you're talking about diversifying your cost-benefit portfolio. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. yeah. The same way you do it, like, you know, your stock portfolio even. Yep. Uh, and so the process is what we call the idea factory. And it's got a few different rounds to it. And I'll, I'll try not to belabor too many of these points. 
but we have a written project proposal uh, that we ask everyone to turn in when they have an idea for uh, a project that they want to work on. We make everybody turn in at least one of them. Uh-huh. Uh, and there's kind of this template that we agree on definitions of what cost and value and risk and all these things are. And then you fill out a template. Each template usually takes like two or three pages to fill in about this is my project idea and here's why we should do it. And here are some of the risks that are associated with it. And here's actually, this was uh, one other thing that we added to the template besides all the kind of straightforward stuff is we added a field between the first and second times that we did this about for proposers that they could say whether they would want to be the lead on that project if we decided to do it. Mm. Um, and this was one thing that was a little bit interesting because what we wanted to do was make sure that there was a dynamic where if people felt very strongly that they wanted to have ownership of that idea, which is true mm-hmm. uh, for a lot, in a lot of cases, that they would have a chance to express that and we could make sure to respect it when we were assigning people to projects. On the other hand, there are a lot of good ideas where people are like, hey, this would just be cool. And if I get to work on it, great. But if somebody else wants to do it and I'm busy, that's fine too. Mm. Um, And so it made some of those conversations and those who's going to work on what, those decisions were a lot easier because we knew where we had Mm. to, we sort of had made commitments and where we had more flexibility. I see what you mean. Yeah. That's neat. Yeah. And so then the, once people have those ideas that they've, written up and turned in then there's a roughly two to seven day or so review and commenting process that we do all online with like the comments threads and google docs um and this brings me to another point that we thought was really important and is worth thinking about if you're ever in a kind of review situation like this is that even in cases where people don't feel strong ownership of their team or their idea from a project leadership perspective, writing up an idea like, Hey, I think this would be an interesting thing for people to work on. It's like putting yourself out there in a way that can be like kind of tough sometimes, especially if people are ripping your idea to shreds. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. So, you know, before we do the idea factory or this was another sort of tweak that we added to the process was uh, a lightweight code of conduct around how we want people to review and comment, make sure that it's constructive, make sure mm-hmm. that uh, if you have criticism, it gets delivered, you know, one time, not five times, um, you know, a, a, a couple other minor things like this. Um, because in general, there's a lot of research on the concept of psychological safety, which is basically yeah. the idea that there's your work self and your home self or like your personal self and that you don't have to feel like once you get to work, you have to pretend to be somebody else that you feel like you can just be yourself and then yeah. that's, yeah. you know, authenticity or whatever. And that that's one of the characteristics of particularly high performing teams is that people feel safe to put themselves out there. Um, this is when people are putting out their ideas around, these are projects that I think are interesting or cool. That's a relatively vulnerable place to be. So just reminding everyone as, as important as it can be to look through these proposals rigorously and ask hard questions that everyone is giving and receiving feedback in a spirit that's kind of like, okay, we're all on the same side here and, you know, let's try to keep it constructive to maintain that psychological safety. Yeah. Psychological safety is something that I, I think in certain fields, including in, in tech in general, is often overlooked. So I'm really happy that that's, uh, that that's in there. Are there particular ways that 
you have, so I've spent most of my professional life outside of Silicon Valley proper. I'm curious if there are any techniques or methods that you've seen people employ to try to make sure that folks are being respectful of one another's ideas. It's a little tough to answer that because I've only worked in a couple of, of uh, places here. I know that some environments, in particular a lot of startup environments, can be uh, toxic. I have not encountered that firsthand, but I can say I, I work with a creative agency that uh, is actually one of the teams within Facebook, and they do a lot of uh, design stuff and a lot of video stuff. And one thing that I, it's a very different world than the engineering world, but one thing I like about it is they are very good at giving feedback on and directly critiquing each other's ideas while keeping in mind that those ideas are um, coming from a person and that person cares about them, right? Uh, and and I think that, you know, some people do that better. Some people do that not as, as well. But at least in the people on that team who I've worked with, it, it does feel like they're able to be both honest and direct, yet also kind. That's a good balance. Yeah, it's it's one that I strive for in my personal life and my communication. But it, it's it's a hard thing to do. It's it's definitely a skill, and it's not one that we're particular. It's not one that most people in their workplaces are particularly incentivized to work on. I will say every time we finish an episode, you are never like, that was really terrible, Katie. (laughs) (laughs) What are you talking about? I'm the one who, I'm the one who only brings puns and those puns are truly awful some of the time. And I mean, it could be argued that an off that awfulness is what makes my puns good. I don't know. Maybe. Yeah. Sometimes they're so bad that they're just bad. It's gotten to the point now, we're wandering rather far afield here. We'll pull it back in a moment. But uh, <laughs> my parents listen to this podcast. and my, Do I they was, really? I was, yeah, I was catching up with my parents yesterday. And I think my mom made a comment about how you hadn't made a pun in one of the recent episodes. Are people, oh, I hope no one's counting. I, <laughs> no, just my parents. <laughs> just your parents. Hi, mom. I think um, my parents stopped listening. <laughs> I, I will know if they comment on my comment just now. All right. We'll see. We'll see. Moving on. Yes. Okay. So we've got the proposals in the bag. We've got some reviews and commenting that help people. And that comment is like, the commenting is well done. Like, yeah. Yes. Everyone's safe. Yep. And moreover, a lot of times people will tweak their proposals during those, that commenting period in response to feedback from their colleagues, which is, which tends to be really good. That's awesome. Their colleagues have excellent points. And the whole, the whole idea here is that we've set up the proposal in such a way that it's pulling out that kind of business risk or business value at the outset. So people are forced to phrase their idea in, in terms of those things that we know that the business stakeholders are going to understand. And we also encourage people on our team to go out and talk to everyone in the company in the course of gathering these ideas. And so they'll go talk to other teams and say like, Hey, what's, what are the things that you think we should be working on? So what, what does it look like right now? A bunch of Google Docs in a yep. folder? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. And then we have a round of voting. And that round of voting is so we can get down from 50 ideas to 10 or 15. And, okay. and those 10 or 15, then we actually discuss in person in like sort of these long, like usually one marathon meeting. It might be like a couple hours 
where we spend I guess, a couple hours isn't that long, but where we spend five, six, seven minutes a piece on each idea. Usually we time it out to make sure they all have time. So a person will say, Hey, here's my idea. Um, sometimes not everybody has a chance to read every single one of the proposals. So yeah. we'll, you know, get people acquainted and people can ask questions. And then there's a second round of voting that we would do, uh, around risk and value. So you basically have to say high or low for all of the ideas. Is this high or low risk? Is this high or low value? Oh, interesting. Not like rate on a scale of one to nine, No. just yep. high or low, just high or low. Uh, and yeah, cause otherwise we'd end up with a bunch of Sevens. Sevens, exactly. <laughs> Everything's a seven. Yeah. And this, uh, the second round of voting, it's, it's worth noting that what we're trying to do in that round of voting, at the end of the day, like I said, there's a little bit of uh, artistry to crafting a portfolio out of these right. ideas. Right. So we don't necessarily, as leaders of the department, want to put ourselves in a position where it's fully democratic in the sense that uh, there might be places where we say pick the first and second ideas on the list but the third one doesn't make sense right now because somebody else in another department is working on something similar but the sure. fourth one would be a really great idea or whatever like we yeah. have that kind of flexibility but we want to at the same time be collecting that distributed intelligence of the group around roughly how high risk and how high value do we think each of these projects is so i think in most, maybe almost all cases, we would end up selecting for, uh, like for the development, the projects that had some of the highest risk and or the lowest value. Well, flip it around the highest value, lowest risk. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but, uh, we wanted to, the, the voting here, I just wanted to stress is like serving a slightly different purpose than, uh, voting that right. as you may have encountered it before. It's more of a way of us as leaders having that signal from the group around like, here's what we think we should be prioritizing. I see what you mean. Yeah. Yeah. So this is almost giving you, uh, giving you the collective wisdom of the group as metadata on these, uh, on these documents. Yeah, that's exactly what it is. That's exactly what it is. And so then what we do is kind of take that collective wisdom. We go and have conversations with the various folks who we think would be good leads for these projects and see if they're, interested and available and working on them. Uh, and we go and take these project proposals and we also shop them around to other parts of the company. Um, again, there's usually other, the other folks in the company have some idea that this is going on. Maybe they've even had conversations with folks on our team. Uh, but when there's actual concrete, Hey, I think this is the thing that we're going to do. And we take that to them in hand. Then sometimes they have more specific feedback that they can give us and we can make adjustments before we say like, okay, let's go ahead and do this. Yeah. Uh, and then the last thing is, of course, then letting everyone know which of these projects we're going to be doing and if there's anything that we wanted to be adjusting on them after some of that feedback that we got from uh, getting the buy-in from the rest of the organization. Uh, and this is the last big point of the talk that I'll be, well, one of the last big points of the talk that I'll be giving tomorrow or in two days. Or is, a couple of weeks ago. <laughs> right, yes. <laughs> exactly. Is how important it is to be over communicating all of this, at least mm. in our case, uh, it's really important to say all of these things again and again and again. So why are we doing this? Uh, how do we define risk? How do we define value? Why is it important right. for us to think in these terms? You should go out and talk to each other, psychological safety, blah, blah, blah. 
And so counting up sort of all of the different conversations that we have to have over the course of that month to make this happen. Yeah. And even then it's still, uh, there's still questions that I know that we've answered, but that come up and this is not a big deal. It's not a problem, but just to say that if you're in a situation where you're introducing a new piece of process like this, or you're doing something, uh, with a team that they've never done before, especially if they're a team of really smart, inquisitive people, then, uh, the way that you get buy-in from your team, if they're anything like mine is you have to talk to them a lot and over communicate even what it is you're doing, why you're doing it that way and make sure that everyone understands that what this is, what this is all about. And that, I guess that goes for my team, but it also goes for when you're talking to people outside of your team as well and doing kind of that external sales pitch, if you like. So, uh, that's a really important thing that tends to be overlooked because it's easy to think that just because you've said something that everyone heard it and understands it. Right. Um, in my experience, you usually have to say it a little bit more than just once or twice or three times. Yeah. Meet space is always the hardest. Indeed. Computers remember the first time you tell them something. Yeah. Yeah. So that's the gist of the talk. There's a little bit more that we have sort of as a, as a postscript about some of the specific projects that we've uh, that we've picked in other ways that we've done this because we've done this in my department a couple of times. And then we also did something that was really similar for a larger like company level road mapping type exercise. Uh, so speaking of that a little bit more, but I think that, you know, the, the key ideas we've already covered here, the idea that you need to set up these uh, channels of dialogue from the business stakeholders through the management down to the data scientists and back yeah. up in order for, in our case, for us to figure out what we were going to work on as a department. But again, this is a thing that we see again and again in the companies that we work with, uh, that some of the biggest value that they get from starting analytics programs, having successful analytics programs, is it forces some of those people to get into a room and talk with each other. Right. Uh, yeah. And so making sure that that communication is happening is sometimes the largest part of solving the problems. Awesome. Well, I feel like I've got... I feel like I got a manage a data science team now. <laughs> I, I, I'm ready. I'm ready, and I don't have to attend the conference tomorrow. No. <laughs> no, that's right. You can hang out in the Facebook offices instead of in a convention center. Yeah, that's true. Well, speaking from the future, when everyone will be hearing our voices, I'm glad your talk went well. Linear digressions is a Creative Commons endeavor which means you can share or use it any way you like. Just tell them we said hi. To find out more about this or any other episode of Linear Digressions, go to LinearDigressions.com. And if you like this podcast, go ahead and leave us a review on iTunes so other people get to listen to this content too. You can always get in touch with either of us. Our emails are ben at LinearDigressions.com and katie at LinearDigressions.com in case you have comments or suggestions for future shows. You can tweet us at LinDigressions. Thank you for joining us, and we'll see you next time.